This is Lecture 10 on Essential Buddhism, taught by Joseph Goldstein at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, on August 15, 1974. A little bit about how to take all of this and use it in one's life, in one's, whatever one is doing after, after leaving Naropa. I'd like to read a story uh, from the way of Cheng Tzu. The Taoist expression of the Dharma is very beautiful. It's a very, very light and very clear indication of how we should live our lives. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own, even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, he will shout again, and yet again, and begin cursing. And all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat, crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you, no one will seek to harm you. to empty our boats crossing the river of the world. That's a very beautiful way to live, to empty this boat of the idea of self, of I, of me or mine. When there is no self, <coughs> when, we are not, when we are not driven on by this concept of separateness and division, there's very little tension between ourselves and other people and situations, we're like this empty boat crossing the river. But we are very conditioned not to be empty. We're very conditioned to react with clinging, with condemning, with identifying with what's going on. So it takes a certain effort in the beginning to stay in this empty state. And in leaving a situation such as this, which is very supportive for the Dharma, where a lot of people are practicing, and going out into a worldly situation where there is not very much support, where most people are not empty and not practicing to be empty, there are certain things which are helpful to do to keep us in a state of awareness. It is just that awareness or mindfulness which keeps us empty, right? If we're aware of all the things that are happening moment to moment, without clinging and without condemning and without identifying with them, they all arise and pass through us. No resistance. Very easy, very harmonious, very simple way to live. No resistance. The way to, to live in that state is to be very mindful. And the way to be very mindful in one's, in one's daily life is to practice mindfulness. It's really very important and helpful and indispensable, I would think, for most people 
who want to be in this state of selflessness, right, of emptiness, to continue some kind of daily practice. It's very difficult to maintain the state of awareness which may have, which may have happened here in this environment. It's very difficult to maintain that in a very hectic worldly situation without some kind of regular daily discipline practice. And sitting for an hour or two a day is a tremendous help. It's just a period of sitting quietly, getting the mind into a, into a space of silence and openness. And the awareness that comes out of that space will be carried over then throughout the rest of the day. What happens if one doesn't practice every day is that slowly the concentration and the mindfulness get, begin to get weaker because they are impermanent mental factors like everything else. If we practice them, they get strong. If we don't practice them, they get weak. If we do not do this kind of daily practice, right, daily meditation, what happens is the mindfulness and samadhi start getting weaker and weaker. As they get weaker and weaker, it becomes more and more difficult to sit. Right? The mind is wandering all over the place, we get full of tension. As it becomes more difficult to sit, we don't like to sit. Right? And so we sit even less. So the mindfulness and samadhi get even weaker. And it's sort of this spiral downward. And that's exactly what happened to me the first time I came home from from India. I came back to America with the thought that I'm going to be going back to India and that's the place to practice. So I'll just relax here. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big mistake. Because exactly that process started happening. As I, as I stopped sitting, the sitting became more and more difficult, right? Because the, the mindfulness and concentration got very weak. So I didn't like to sit and I sat even less. But all the time there was this accumulation of input, right? All, all these senses, especially in America, which is very speedy. It's a very fast-moving fast moving society. Tremendous input. If we're not clearing out, if we're not emptying, if we're not releasing this tension, it starts to accumulate and build up in our mind and body. So if we're not sitting, there's, there's not so much release. So by way of easing that kind of tension, I started going to the movies a lot, <laughs> you know, and smoking and, and all the things people do to sort of cool out their minds e even, even temporarily. <coughs> of course, that's only more input and more tension, which makes the sitting even more difficult. So it, it's, just this, it's just this very big spiral down. <laughs> Okay, if one has a daily practice, if, if there's a certain amount of discipline, just to sit every day, or to do the walking in sitting, sit for an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, what happens is that the mindfulness and the concentration get better. As they get better, it becomes more and more easy to sit, more and more enjoyable, more and more pleasant. As it becomes easier to sit, you want to sit more. So you sit longer and more and more regularly, and the samadhi and the mindfulness get even stronger. And there is less need to seek this release of tension in tension-producing activities. 
So generally, it's a whole movement upwards or towards more and more light or ease of living. It's very important. If you are serious about the practice of, of mindfulness, of awareness, of living wakefully, it's very important to, to practice, to sit every day. You will find that it very much changes your whole, your whole base of living. Right? It puts you on a whole different ground. It very much carries over into the whole rest of the day in whatever else you're doing. Meditation does not mean sitting. It means being mindful. We can make the whole day a meditation by practicing awareness of everything we're doing. If we devote a certain amount of time to intensifying that factor of awareness, of mindfulness, for example, in a walking or sitting practice, it's much easier to carry over that state into the rest of the day, and so the whole day becomes a meditation. And it's a very beautiful, balanced way to live. The mind is not always in this, in this very reactive state, not always clinging and condemning or identifying with every input. We become like the empty boat, and so stay in harmony. People do not get angry. People do not start shouting at empty boats. It's always peaceful, always easy, always simple. All through being mindful, through being aware, through being empty of self, empty of this concept of I or me or mine. Just some practical suggestions about carrying over this, the practice from, from this kind of situation into wherever you happen to be going. It's a very big help to try and determine a time that you can sit at every day, the same time every day. Right? Whatever happens to fit one's particular schedule. There are several reasons for this. One is that if you have a set time that you're going to sit, it's less likely that you'll miss it. Right? It's sort of scheduled into the day already. Also, the mind gets into the habit of settling down at that hour. Right? Through, through the practice, if every day at 8 o'clock in the morning, you're going to sit for an hour. After some time, it comes 8 o'clock, you sit out of habit, the mind becomes very settled, very calm, very collected, very easily, right? out of the routine. It's also important, I think, to have the idea of the meditation, of the practice of awareness and wakefulness as a priority in one's life, rather than as something to squeeze in if there's time. Right? Because with that kind of mind, it's very easy, oh, tonight I'll go to the movies or out to dinner, so I'll just skip the sitting and I'll sit tomorrow. Right? That, that sort of mind starts working. And before long, there's very little practice being done because we lead generally very busy lives. Right? If we have the idea of the practice as being a very high priority thing in our lives, 
not necessarily sitting all day long. High priority in the sense that every day we should at least put aside some time for the practice. It sort of makes more space, makes more room in our life, right, to continue the practice. If we have that kind of perspective on it. It's really helpful. It's very, very helpful to be cultivating these factors of enlightenment. I would try to sit at the very minimum for an hour a day, maybe with 20 or 25 minutes of walking before that. Much better is to sit in the morning and the evening. You sort of start out the day, you set yourself up for the day with a heightened sense of awareness, and at the end of the day you cool yourself out. And you'll be able to feel, if you sit at the end of the day, you'll be able to feel all the accumulated tensions just, just leaving. Emptying oneself. Very nice way to end the day. To go to sleep very peacefully. And in fact, even in going to sleep, when you lie down, in the time between lying down and falling off to sleep, that can be a time of meditation. Just in the lying position to be with the breath, very simply, very easily, keeps the mind very relaxed. There's a story which one of our teachers used to tell at the end of every meditation course, which I think is very appropriate. It seems that there was an old fisherman type out in his little boat on the sea. And this one day he was taking some passenger someplace. And the passenger happened to be a very dignified and and respectable professor. And they're out in the middle of the sea on this journey, and the professor comes to the old sailor one day, and he says, what do you know about oceanography? The old sailor didn't even know what the word meant, much less what it was all about. And the old professor was very taken aback Here you are, you spend your whole life on the sea. You don't even know about the the laws governing the ocean. And you don't know about oceanography. Oh, you've wasted a quarter of your life. The next day again, the professor comes to the old man and asks, what do you know about meteorology? And again, the old sailor had not even heard of the word. And the professor goes on and on about how how he's wasted his life, and here he's, he's in the element and not knowing anything about the weather. What has he been doing with his life? Oh, old man, you've wasted half of your life. And on the third day, again the professor comes to the old sailor. He says, old man, do you know anything about astronomy? How, how do you navigate the, the ship? And the old man again didn't know what what astronomy was. He said, here you're you're sailing on the sea and and the stars are above your head and you don't know anything about the laws governing. How do you manage to to keep up? And in, in just utter disgust, the professor says, oh, you've wasted three quarters of your life. 
The next day, the old sailor comes, comes rushing to the professor, and he asks the professor, Professor, do you know anything about swimology? And the professor says, no, why? The old man says, the ship is sinking. If you don't know how to swim, you're going to drown. Oh, you've wasted all of your life. It's the swimology which is important, right? <laughs> all the theory, all the ideas, all the concepts, whether we know them or don't know them or agree or disagree, whatever opinions we have about it do not really matter, right? The important thing is the practice, the experience of awareness of wakefulness. So we should learn swimology first, right? That should be the basis of what we're doing. And after we're, we're quite well, after we, have, after we have a fair expertise in swimology, then it's interesting to do all the other studies, right? But we should be grounded in the practice, in the experience. And the experience is of silence of mind, in which all concepts and all ideas and all opinions fall away anyway. So what should be incorporated at the most basic level in our lives is this place of silent awareness. Right? There's no need to, to leave Naropa with a lot of ideas about things. Much better to leave with a, with a sense of openness and awareness and receptivity and silence and peace and understanding on the intuitive experiential level of what everything is all about. And that comes through the practice, through the cultivation of mindfulness, of one-pointedness, of investigation of the Dharma, of tranquility, of equanimity, all the factors of enlightenment. I'd like to read one more thing from Chang Tzu. He calls it the man of Tao, and how this man lives in the world. The man in whom Tao acts without impediment harms no other being by his actions. Yet he does not know himself to be kind, to be gentle. The man in whom Tao acts without impediment does not bother with his own interests and does not despise others who do. He does not struggle to make money and he does not make a virtue of poverty. He goes his way without relying on others and does not pride himself on walking alone. While he does not follow the crowd, he won't complain of those who do. Rank and reward make no appeal to him. Disgrace and shame do not deter him. He is not always looking for right and wrong, always deciding yes or no. The ancients said, therefore, the man of Tao remains unknown. Perfect virtue produces nothing. No self is true self and the greatest man is nobody.
to live in that in that space. He's very, very peaceful. Right? Not striving, not condemning those who strive, being very simple and easy, letting the Tao, letting the Dharma unfold. There are some spaces of mind which make that kind of openness and simplicity and acceptance very easy. One of those, one of those spaces of mind is the space of love. Right? When we put our minds into a very loving place, not loving, not the businessman's love, right? I'll love you if you'll love me, or I'll love you if I get something back for it. But the space of love in which we're just feeling, sending out universal loving thoughts, wishing well for all beings. It's a very open place of mind, very spacious. There are particular ways to develop that kind of mind. There are meditations to develop loving-kindness. And it's a very beautiful space. And in that openness, in that receptivity, it's very easy to cultivate awareness to cultivate penetrating insight, because it opens the mind up, right? In that state of openness, insight becomes very simple. What I'd like to do now is just explain a very simple way of developing that kind of mind, the mind which is sending out, which is expressing loving thought, universal loving thought, not, not dis discriminating, not I'll love him and not him, right? but encompassing the whole universe with one's love, very expansive. And it's done simply by becoming quiet, and repeating certain phrases expressive of those loving thoughts. And they can be anything. They can be anything which feels right to oneself. For example, one can sit and repeat silently, may all beings be happy, may all beings be free of ill will, may all beings be free of suffering, may all beings be enlightened. May all beings be happy, really feeling what that means. Wishing happiness for all beings everywhere. Free of ill will. Feeling that state of mind that is free of hatred and anger. And wishing that for all beings. May all beings be free of ill will, free of suffering, both physical and mental. Wishing that state of ease and comfort for all beings everywhere. May all beings be enlightened, the very highest happiness, the highest liberation. 
to sit quietly and for five or ten minutes simply repeat these phrases or any others, it does not matter. It is a mantra of love. Not only is the mind becoming one-pointed on the mantra, it is cultivating this factor of mind of loving-kindness. It's very beautiful. It puts the mind into a very beautiful place. Sometimes because of the special relations, relationships we have with certain people, we can also direct this love, this loving thought, towards a particular person, right? Visualizing that person and directing these thoughts toward that visualization. Right? May you be free of suffering, may you be happy, may you be enlightened. There's one line from a song by the Jefferson Airplanes, which I find a, a very beautiful way of doing this loving-kindness meditation, especially directed towards a person or a group of people. And that is, may all love surround you. And it just seems you can feel this, this sort of cover or, or surrounding of love, right, being sent out. And repeating just that one line, it, it awakens that vibration in oneself. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, may the long time sun shine upon you. Oh, incredible string band. Okay. <laughs> Why don't we sit and just practice that for about ten minutes? We'll sit and do this this mantra of loving kindness. Feel any phrases which, which seem appropriate to you, which, which you feel rhythmic with. And either starting out with a particular person or persons, and then making it universal, right? Expanding it to encompass all beings everywhere. Send out these thoughts of love. It will sit for about just ten minutes doing this. Any questions either about the practice of the loving kindness or what we discussed today or during the during the five weeks? Okay, it's not there are there are two two things to do. One is to try and do it anyway, to get the mind to that place or to let it go until you feel more relaxed and more easy and it's easier to send out the loving thoughts. It can be done either when you sit down before your practice by way of setting the mind up, right? making it very open, pliable, gentle. It could also be done at the end when the mind is already peaceful, <coughs> you know, it's already cooled out through, through the, the meditation practice and also more powerful because the mind is concentrated. <coughs> or both. You could start out each sitting for five or ten minutes with this loving-kindness meditation and end it for five or ten minutes. Right? Or one or the other. It shouldn't be forced. Right? You should not be forcing love, but it can be cultivated. So even if you're not feeling it particularly, 
through practice the feeling gets strong. When I did that, I did this practice once for a couple of months, just all day long, you know, intensive practice as a samadhi development. And in the beginning, it was really mechanical. I was just sitting there repeating these words, right, and I was not feeling it. But through the practice, as the mind got more and more concentrated, you know, on this mantra of love, slowly it really began to have an effect, and there grew this very great feeling of what the words were about. Right. So it can be cultivated. As you continue your meditation, should you like consciously um, sit for longer periods of time or let it happen if it does? I mean, you know, building up... I would try to sit for at least an hour at a time or build up to an hour if it's, if it's difficult to do that. Because that's enough time to sort of clear out the superficial stuff and also begin to go deeper. Right? If you sit for 20 minutes or half an hour, you barely are settling down when it's time to get up. Right? If you can sit longer, that's better. Right? If you can sit for an hour and a half or two hours, then you really can begin to penetrate very deeply. Love is unconditional. There are no demands, no rewards in the kingdom of love. No demands, no rewards, no expectations. It's a very beautiful space. You know, it just, it just opens one up. And in that space, insight, wisdom, can be very easily developed. Right? Not only is, a nice, is it a nice space in and of itself, but it can be used for the development of very penetrating awareness. This is unusual. (laughs) (laughs) Remaining problems (laughs) before going out into the cold world. (laughs) Okay, yeah. You said that the inside is seeing the impermanence and the rising and falling of everything. What do you do with that after you see it? There's nothing. You don't have to do anything. The whole Dharma unfolds. But some very interesting things begin to unfold through that insight. One of which is that as you begin to see the whole process as impermanent, this mind-body just arising and passing away moment to moment, there comes to be a very integrated sense that it is all empty of self. It's just processes going on, empty phenomena going on. Not empty in the sense of not being there, empty in the sense of empty of self, right? As that experience is integrated more and more, if there's no self, there's no other. So that distinction and separation begins to fall away. And out of that emptiness comes a very meaningful experience of loving kindness for all beings, right? Because you're not feeling the separation. So one gets into a very balanced, open, loving place, all from seeing the flow of impermanence.
When you understand the truth, when you understand the Dharma, on a very deeply personal level, it just makes all of one's life so simple and easy and harmonious. Because you're not in conflict with any of the natural laws. Right? It's just, you're with the flow of what's happening, very harmoniously. <coughs> It's just to experience whatever it is that's happening. Sometimes it may seem sad, sometimes happy, sometimes joyful, sometimes suffering. You get the whole, the whole range of experience when you're just sitting back and observing it. Right? Not projecting how we would like things to be, but just experiencing things as they are. And in that way you experience the totality of, of the mind-body mind -body situation which is the whole world. The whole world is right here. When we, when we really observe ourselves on a deeper and deeper level, we understand the entire universe. Right? Because it is the same process going on. Same process in you, in me, in Rinpoche, in the Buddha. Right? So all we have to do is sit back and observe, to be aware of what's happening in our own mind and body. And then everything is opened up, everything is revealed to the very deepest levels. I found that on certain situations, the harder for me to handle that to meditate. Um, I used to teach elementary school, so I would do hacky yoga and meditate in the morning, and then go there, and I found that like it was so chaotic <laughs> that it was harder for me to deal with the situation there because my, where my mind was at, in such a, you know, it was like I had a peaceful place but I was being surrounded by an unpeaceful situation, and um, I really found it difficult. It's interesting, because uh, sometimes we're not the best judge of how we're dealing with the situation. In other words, you can have that experience of the chaos of the public school system, <laughs> you know, and that that feeling of it can be very deep if you're coming from a peaceful place. And so you may be, you may be thinking that it's such a chaotic, tense situation, and you're feeling that because, you know, you have meditated and made the mind calm. There are two things which are happening. One is, in either case, you're feeling the tension and the chaos, right? One is with consciousness and one is unconsciously. You're just absorbing all that tension or chaos. You're absorbing it anyway, right? Whether you're mindful or not. <coughs> if, you're, if you're mindful, it's all passing through, right? And in fact, the way we're dealing with it, if you are in a peaceful place, although you may not be aware of it, is generally with much more harmony and, and togetherness. You know, if you're coming from a place of peace, even though you're feeling it as a very chaotic situation, in fact, your dealing with the situation is generally with a much greater peacefulness and ease. Yeah, I wasn't finding that happening. Possibly it was happening and you weren't aware of it because you were tuning into the tension because your mind was silent. Right? It would have been interesting to have an outside observer seeing how you dealt with the situation you know, after meditation or, or without. Because sometimes we don't see clearly 
that in fact our silence of mind is indeed putting out a very peaceful vibe, which is appropriate to the situation. I know, when I came back from India a couple of times, I was doing some substitute teaching. And I know, it's incredible. The tension that's, that's in the school systems, right? I just intuitively feel it's much better if the teacher is not adding his own tension, <laughs> you know, which is what usually happens. So even if you're not, even if you don't teach a single thing, the state of peace you bring to it is a teaching in itself. Right? As Rinpoche would say, good luck. Generally, I think it, it's more beneficial if you take a period of time, whether it's a week or a month or a year or whatever, and go to the depths of one or the other. Right? If you keep switching back and forth, you're going to stay superficial in both. Right? They, they both have a value in, in what they respectively do. Right? They do different things, both of which are valuable. In order to experience fully the path involved in each of them, it's good to do it completely. Right? Otherwise, I think the mind will get confused. You sit down, oh, should I do mantra today? Should I watch the breathing? Or should I just, you know? And so it just stays on the very surface level. Take a chunk of time in which you're going to devote yourself to a particular practice and do it completely. It's interesting, one of my teachers, after he finished his training in this kind of meditation, he was anxious to learn other techniques. Right? And he asked his teacher, and his teacher said you know, that he should go out. Even in doing vipassana, inside meditation, there are, I don't know, 20 or 30 different ways of doing vipassana. Right? So he went out and studied with a lot of different teachers, different methods. And he said that each time he went to a different teacher, and it was for a period of weeks or months, he said he acted, or he trained the mind to be as if it knew nothing, right? Beginner's mind. This is even after he had reached really high levels of attainment. But in learning something else, in doing, in doing a new method or technique, he devoted himself completely to it. And in that way, he could really experience what it was about. You know, if he had tried to carry over one to the other, it's hard. The mind, the mind can get confused. And when you don't, when you experience each thoroughly, you see very well either how they complement one another or how they are in fact different aspects of the same thing. But be thorough. You know, be thorough in whatever one is doing. And that way you experience it fully. Yes. Is it possible to combine the breathing with the mantra? Does the mindfulness, the breathing, and the mantra will all become one? It is possible. When the mindfulness is very strong, it is picking up phenomena, the flow of phenomena, very microscopically, the arising and passing away. 
And in that state, there's no time to do mantra. Right? Because you're seeing, it's like, it's like a flood of phenomena happening so quickly, so rapidly, and the mind is, is very distinctly aware of it. There's no time to do anything except sit back and be with the flow. Right? So in the beginning, it could be used in coordination with the breath as the mindfulness of rising and falling of all phenomena, thoughts and feelings and sensations, and the breath, as that awareness gets sharp, the labeling falls away, the mantra will fall away, all that will be there is a silent, very sharp awareness of the process. When I started sitting, I was concentrating on the rise and fall of my chest, but, uh, Sometimes I find that my mind goes to the tip of my nose. I was wondering if it makes any difference, really. It doesn't, but you should be with one or the other. You mean like when I sit down, I should be with one, or just all the times I sit? All the times you sit, because it will train the mind to stay on that. It does not matter which one. Mm -hmm. They're equal. But if you train the mind to stay on one or the (coughs) other, the one-pointedness will get very sharp. You'll get very concentrated. Also, I think it's more relaxing. It's more relaxed breathing if you're breathing, if if you're observing the abdomen than the chest. Yeah. Any other questions? From the begi- from exactly where we are now to the highest state of enlightenment, it's exactly the same practice, and that is mindfulness. Right? To be aware of what's happening in the present moment without clinging, without condemning, without identifying. Different things begin to happen, different perspectives right, on phenomena. But through all of these stages, the practice remains the same, to just observe it. For the development of samadhi and of powers, those are different practices. There are specific practices to develop high degrees of concentration and psychic power in that whole trip. And those are specific practices, and you really need a teacher for that. That's a different path and by itself does not lead to enlightenment, although it could be used. The path leading to freedom is that of this choiceless awareness. With whatever is happening, develop a mind which clings to naught. If there's any clinging to anything whatsoever, it's bondage. We want to free ourselves all around. The practice is so simple. It's not a complicated thing. It's just the doing of it. One of the most difficult parts of that practice is uh, when you come on uh, really negative feelings like resentment or or fear in the course of your practice. It easily gets swept away and then hard to be mindful. Can you say anything about, about that space? One important thing, and a very common trap yogis fall into, is to begin to condemn them. You know, as soon as the negativity starts coming up, we either condemn the negative things or condemn ourselves for having them. And that's not the path, right? Because they are all impermanent, all not self. 
Anger, hatred, fear are all mental factors which arise and pass away. If we can just be aware of them without identifying with them, they lose all their power to disturb the mind. Right? So it's not to condemn them, right? not to get into this judgment trip of how bad I am because I'm feeling hatred. Hatred is in the mind, you just watch it. Oh, hating, 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 goes away. That condemning is a very common thing, you know. I used to go running to my teacher all the time telling him how bad I was. <laughs> because you see these things, you know, they're in the mind and they come up, and it's a little shocking, you know, because you have this image of yourself. And of course he just sat there and smiled and, you know, said, just watch him. <laughs> because they are not self. We don't have to take responsibility for them if we're not identifying with them. If we're just observing, the thought can be, you can have thoughts of murder and the most horrible thoughts in the world, and they are all empty. They're just like clouds passing in the sky. If you laugh at them, you should be aware that you're laughing at them. <laughs> to stay aware, moment to moment, without clinging, without condemning, without identifying with it. <laughs> <laughs> you would not be doing it mindfully because that would be identifying with that thought if you have you mean what should one do <laughs> stay mindful there, there are stories of very very infamous murderers getting enlightened right it's interesting, there was this one, this one guy who in the Buddhist time was, he had killed 999 people, right? Due to some good karma or other, he came into contact with the Buddha and his mind became very tranquil, very pacified. He became a monk, he became enlightened, okay? He was still had, as a monk, after his enlightenment, he was still enduring a lot of the karma he had accrued. He'd be walking in the villages and people would be throwing stones at him. He used to come back from from the arms round, all bloody and a mess. His mind was free, right? his mind was undisturbed. But that karma of, of having committed the act was partially coming back. Right? Of course, there was, there was a great deal of karma he was free from that would have come to fruition in, in his subsequent life. Okay? But it does not matter what one has done because it's past. There's no sense having guilt about something we have done in the past because it's done and finished. We can start right now from being aware. You said there were certain things that you did in this lifetime. But you said learning in another part. What about anything else? You can't hear her. I asked him, he said there's certain things that you do, you can't get enlightened in this lifetime. And one of them was learning in another part. What about just murdering anybody? You can still get enlightened. So, anybody who has committed murder, don't worry. Just practice. In fact, you better practice. Well, the word is violence, like people committed violent crimes, and I don't know what process 
Sure, it is possible because we have the seeds of enlightenment within our mind all the time. In the meditation uh, where you see a thought and look at very close and let it go, is that um, not developing samadhi, but developing insight? It's developing insight and the, the kind of samadhi which is called moment-to-moment concentration, which means a highly concentrated object on the a highly concentrated mind on the flow of objects, not on a fixed object. Right? So in each moment of a changing object, the mind is is very strongly one-pointed. Right? You can get very high samadhi, through, in fact, you do get very high samadhi through the practice of mindfulness. Right? It's not the samadhi of absorption into the object. It's this, it's this moment-to-moment samadhi, but on a very high level, the level sufficient for enlightenment. Right? In other words, um, when you talk about the breathing and concentration, being aware of the breathing, is that similar to what I was saying just now, or is that developing the one through, like concentrating on candle crying? It's both. In the beginning, it's, it's that single object, right, to develop a minimal level of concentration, which is needed to become mindful of everything that's happening. The mind that's scattered just immediately gets, gets blown away. Right? You need a certain degree of concentration to stay mindful moment to moment. Right? And that's why the breathing serves as that very important primary object. When it's developed, then it's completely choiceless. You're just sitting down, doing nothing at all. Just being with the, the flow. But in the beginning, the breath is used as that kind of concentration uh, object. <coughs> Are you, when you become mindful, or when you've gotten that state, or do you realize that you're mindful? I mean, it seems like I've been practicing, and I've never been mindful, really. I'm sure you have been mindful. There are, there are degrees of mindfulness, you know, intensities of mindfulness. And at times it gets very, very strong. And you know that it's strong. You know that you're mindful, definitely. And also, in that, at that time, there should be the awareness that mindfulness is strong without identifying with that either. Mm-hmm. Because it also is just an impersonal mental factor. Are there guidelines or ways to check yourself to make sure you have misused meditation that you know you're not being mindful or being something else? Well, in doing intensive practice, it's helpful to be with a teacher. You know, because it's possible for the mind to back into a corner and not be aware of it. And that happens more commonly when you're doing it all day long, when you're really developing the meditation intensively. In daily practice, sitting for an hour or two a day, generally it stays very balanced and self-regulating. The last words of the Buddha, or one of the last words, when, when one of his disciples asked, now that, now that you're dying, who's going to be our teacher? He said, let the Dharma be your teacher. Right? You don't need any other teacher. If you understand the Dharma within yourselves, that is the teacher. Right? We should develop a certain confidence in our own understanding, in our own appreciation of what the Dharma is about, about <coughs> what mindfulness is, and that is the teacher. Right? Um, I've been 
you know, getting a certain amount of tranquility in the city. And um, when I come across like, very strong feelings of, of getting angry or something, and I sort of look at them and notice them, and they sort of melt away. And uh, when I'm not mindful, I get very intensely involved with things. It's very exciting, whether it's very painful or, or very ecstatic. And I see these two sides of myself, and I'm not really sure that I like this sort of sitting back, tranquil, uninvolved, unexcited, Kind of thing. You can get very excited mindfully. Generally, what disappears are the unwholesome factors, right? Which is just as well, unless, for some reason, you choose to hang out in a place of greed, hatred, or delusion, <laughs> <laughs> which everyone is free to do. <laughs> Those are the things which are which are lessened and uprooted through mindfulness. All the, all the wholesome states of love and joy and rapture is one of the factors of enlightenment, right? That keen interest in the object, in what's happening, that very alert state of mind, all those factors are cultivated. Right? People generally live, as their practice develops, lead very joyful, happy, easy lives. Right? It's the unwholesome factors which are getting diminished. Okay. Uh, anything else that you must ask or you will die <laughs> before we uh, do some swimology? Good announcements. There is, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there is a Zen center with, from what I hear, a very excellent Korean Zen master. Like lots of people who have been in contact with him really are very impressed with, with him and his teachings. Uh, and they have a weekly or monthly? Once a month. Once a month, a three-day sashin. Sometimes a week, sometimes a three days. Okay, so anybody who's in that area might very profitably contact them. And the address is on the blackboard. All of the courses, the intensive meditation courses that are going to be given, that are planned right now, the places and dates and people to contact are on a sheet of paper on the board in the back of the room. So, if you And also, my home address is there. If anybody has any problems or questions arising in their practice, you're more than welcome to write. And sometime or other, you might get an answer. <laughs> <laughs> but feel free <laughs> to write, anyway. If you do write, I just thought it might be nice to include a return stamp. You could. It's not necessary. But no, um, also, those of you who took those uh, course evaluation sheets, who did not fill them out last time, if you would fill them out before leaving and just leave them. Okay. Box 577, South Fallsburg, F-A-L-L-S-B-U-R-G, New York, 12779. That was for the tape.
<laughs> you have to deal with it's on the board on the back <laughs> One nice adjunct to the loving-kindness meditation is to sit down as one begins to, before one begins the practice of sending out loving thought, to ask forgiveness if we have hurt or offended anyone in thought, in word, or in deed. Often in the course of a day or our lives, for some reason or other, either knowingly or unknowingly, we've come into some sort of conflict or tension with other people or other beings. And it's very nice just to clear out that sort of tension. So when we just sit down to meditate, to mentally ask forgiveness if we have hurt anyone in thought, <coughs> in word or in deed, and to extend forgiveness to anyone who may have offended us. And then to do, and then to do five or ten minutes of loving-kindness meditation, and then to sit and practice mindfulness, the vipassana. It makes the mind very light, very workable, very easy, very open. So why don't we do that, and then just go into the practice of, of mindfulness. We'll sit for about, can do the, we can do the loving-kindness meditation for five or ten minutes and then just go into the, the mindfulness practice for about half an hour. You'll see how very nice it feels when, when one asks that kind of forgiveness. And it need not be of anyone in particular, although it could be, but just in general. It makes the mind very easy. Beings everywhere be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be liberated. I'd like to thank everyone. It's been a really nice course for me anyway. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.